Said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Hey, podcast listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in again. I guess tuning in isn't actually what you're doing, downloading in or whatever you're doing. Um, just a quick intro to this week's episode. Uh, this is a rare episode because I'm interviewing two people, not just one. This is uh, Stephen O and uh, Malcolm Fleischner, I think is the correct pronunciation. Um, they work at uh, the Young Turks Network. And in fact, we recorded this conversation at uh jank uger's desk so you might hear him barge in needing to use his desk a couple times during the the recording another weird thing about this recording at one point we took a break i think when jank came in and then when we went back on somehow one of the microphones was turned off so you'll hear the other one was still picking up the three of us but you'll hear um a bit of a a distant strangeness for about uh, 15 minutes in there uh, Yvonne, who's doing the, um, the producing these days and, and editing, uh, was able to, to bring that sound level up. So you shouldn't, shouldn't sound too bad, but you might just notice a difference. Um, anyway, endorsements while well, I've got your ear. Uh, my one and only sponsor at this point is Sure Design T-shirts, who are uh, wonderful. In fact, I think our first shipment of T-shirts should be arriving today uh, or maybe tomorrow. I'm not sure, but uh, any moment now. So once I've got those, uh, I'll post some uh, some photos of them. Maybe we'll get some some models. I can get Cassie to model one. And uh, you'll be able to order those through our website at chrisryanphd.com. Or uh, you can always listen to the podcast on iTunes. Um, I'm redesigning the website right now. So uh, you can check that in within a few days or a week or so. I'll announce when the new version is up and running. And uh, feralaudio.com, of course, where you can check out um, Duncan Trussell Family Hour, my favorite podcast. I was just on uh, Ari Shafir's um well, not actually on the podcast yet. We recorded um, a session for his podcast. I'm not sure when he's going to air it, but I'll let you know about that. That was really interesting. We were sitting on the front porch of the um, comedy store in Hollywood, sitting there, you know, a little table, a couple mics, just uh, talking about about masturbation, I think. We actually talked a lot about masturbation now that I think of it. But uh, anyway, as we're sitting there talking, all these tour buses were coming by because it's Hollywood, you know, and the comedy store is one of the stops. So every four or five minutes, another port tour bus would pull up and look at us trying to figure out who we were. Um, I think a lot of people thought I was Philip Seymour Hoffman for some reason. I've been getting that a lot lately. Anyway, hope you enjoy the podcast and uh, thanks for listening as always. Ciao. We're back here with another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm sitting, actually, I am sitting at Cenk Uger's desk, am I not? And this drawer just slid open and I saw there there are dried apricots down there. 
Is that is that a Turkish thing? Those are Turkish apricots. Uh, as a gift from our intern to Jag. That's his way of sucking up to him. Uh, <laughs> this intern uh, left a price tag on the thing. It was uh, <laughs> it was three dollars and ninety nine cents. Oh, nice. Which is fine. Which is fine. That's and fine. I, and the most important thing is that the apricots are actually quite delicious. Are they? Do I've they contain them. sulfur though? That's, I'm sure they do. They, I'm sure yeah. they well, do. Wouldn't even better with Jank to have brought donuts. I mean, realistically, <laughs> but but um, this is his way because uh, these are Turkish apricots. Um, and I said, uh, are they from Turkey? Is no, they're from San Jose. All right, said, great. Right. But the Turkish part of San Jose. Yeah. All right, so here we are. Tangentially speaking, I'm with uh, Stephen O, who is CFO, CEO, C what what COO, COO, the, the coup, the chief operating officer, chief operating officer of yeah. the Young Turks, the Young Turks, and Jenk uh, is a uh, host and the CEO of the Young. Turks. Right. Although he's not here. His desk is here and his apricots are here, but he's not here. He's outside doing the show right now. Yeah. And Malcolm? I'm Malcolm Fleschner. I'm uh, an executive producer of uh, The Point, which is one of the shows here on the TYT network that Chris Ryan has appeared on multiple times now and even hosted. Multiple so offender. You check it out at uh, youtube.com slash The Point. And... Uh, Thanks for coming in. We're happy to do this. Yeah, it's great. Thank, thank you guys for doing it. You're, uh, you know, I, I think I said to you in an email. Malcolm said something like, "Why would anyone want to hear about about our lives?" Aside from the fact that you two are like inherently amusing people and, sure. and fascinating, and you know, profoundly interesting. Are we amusing to you? <laughs> Am I a clown? In a good way. Do, do I amuse you? <laughs> I'm going to get beat up. I'm going to get beat up again. Yeah. I was just talking about doing Joe Rogan's podcast recently. And, and I said, you know, I was, I don't know if you guys have seen his stand up routine. And he's really, he's great. He's yeah. really, really good. Yeah, actually, Joe's a fan of our show, and Jank and Anna were both uh, on his podcast as well. Oh, okay. And we're going to try to get Joe in on uh, in here for one of our shows, too. Oh, well, I got his email. It's a small want. world. Yeah, yeah. I found the podcast world is very incestuous. You know, everybody's doing each other's podcasts. As that should be, well, so is that incestuous, speak. or is that just that fitting with your book and your theme of you know what you're trying to promote here just in a podcast for <laughs> that, that's a complicated question I'm not sure. i'll ask the questions here well i wanted to tell the one thing that we were doing as we were setting up and chris was fiddling with the audio and trying to get it and we were talking and he's saying oh save it for the show this is good stuff we should have this on the show and one thing that i've learned that i want to impress upon him is that you start recording immediately because what we do on the point is we get short videos from celebrities or experts to talk about some issue that they care about and then we use it to launch a discussion on our show and I had a cameraman go out and get a point from Russell Simmons from of Def Jam Records and as they were doing the sound check uh, Russell Simmons broke into a, uh, he started rapping and doing a rapper's delight, you know. Oh and yeah. He went. He went through a, and just did the whole song for them. And uh, when the cameraman told me about this, I was like, "Oh, great! I'd love to have that." He's like, "Oh, well, I wasn't recording yet." I'm like, "Oh, oh, yeah." So now I make a point not of rapping before the podcast, the audio starts before you start recording, because of course my rapping is okay. Well, we're excellent. we're recording. Go oh, ahead. Good. Yeah. Can you start with "I am Wonder Mike," <laughs> and I'd like to say hello. But anyway, that's my tip for you. No, uh, that's my tip for you and all you out there who are looking to become podcasting legends like Chris Ryan. <laughs> yeah, or just record. It's just turn on record. Yes. At sound check, whatever. Yes. Yeah, it's not like you're going to run out of tape. 
Not anymore. Yeah. But we were excited that uh, Chris would want to talk to us for his podcast. I'm a fan of his podcast. I've enjoyed it. And we did wonder why on earth he would want to talk to us. It's not like, you know, this is like whatever the opposite of Sweeps Week is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Us. This one will go into the vault, right? And we'll pull it out right. when we're like, oh, no, we're de- there aren't any podcasts in the in the pipeline. What yeah, are we going to do? Uh, when, when Gary Berghoff, who played Radar O'Reilly, you know, blows oh, you off and you wow. have to fill it with something. Wow, there's pulling one. <laughs> from the vault yeah huh? where i'm old but but we are You're not as old as me i i actually could recite rapper's delight that's that's great well, maybe i had we'll it on a cassette when i went to alaska uh the first time which was what 1983 is that around when that came out like early uh, 80s yeah that's right yeah 82 83 something like that yeah and and the other one was the message you remember that i don't know which, which one's the message uh don't push me because oh, i'm close to the edge I know Lottie Dottie. Dottie, I know through. That's the oh, See, I don't know and, that. Uh, but, uh, so, but you were driving to Alaska. No, I was hitchhiking you to Alaska. You were hitchhiking, so you had plenty of time to listen to it over. Over and over. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how that stuff works. Like, I, another one is, um, I went to, Kashmir in like 88, 89, something like that. And I was on a bus. I, I stupidly, when I went to India, decided not to take any music because I would learn about Indian music better that way. <laughs> great. Great idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Smart. But anyway, uh, I was on a bus, you know, one of these epic 20 hour bus rides you get into in India. And the guy next to me had, um, talking heads, little creatures. You know, like little baby, baby you know, the kind of, kind of strange songs on that. Yeah. But every time I hear them, I'm reminded of Kashmir. Totally. You know? I the same deal with the They Might Be Giants album Flood and Italy. Really? Yeah, because I was in Italy. I had yeah. this tape. I listened to it over and over again. And yeah. So it's just an association which no one else would ever have. Right. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the no. music. or the, <laughs> But yeah. it shows the power of music to take you back to a place yeah. at a time. Yeah. Uh, and it also is an important lesson if you're going to be on a 20-hour bus ride in Kashmir, bring your iPad. Bring your own well, iPad. iPod, iPod. These <laughs> days. Yeah. I mean, those days it was bring your Walkman yeah. and, you know, 20, 90-minute TDK cassettes. Yeah. You know, I was, I was thinking about this on the drive in here this morning, actually, because, you know, I've lived in Spain for 20 years or elsewhere for 25 years. I haven't really lived in this country since the early. I lived here for a couple of years in the early 90s. And then before that, it was the mid 80s, right? College. And um, so when I listen to classic rock in the car now, I haven't heard this shit since it was current. Yeah. You know, it's not like I've been listening to classic rock all along, so it's picked up other associations. For me, it I hear sticks. I mean, I don't know if you guys even know, you know, or Bad Company or yeah. something. Yeah, Mr. Roboto. I don't know. <laughs> Mr. Roboto? Yeah, Mr. Roboto was one of their big hits. Oh, was they were out of the country at that point. Uh, but yeah. they had a lot of hits. They, they were, they were yeah. but the problem I have with classic rock is that they play like, Pearl Jam on classic rock stations now. Right. Yeah. And it's like, no, no. Yeah. No, they, no, you understand that's, that's music from when I was young, so it can't be classic yeah. rock because I'm not old or anything. Yeah. No, you are. Yeah. How, how old are you? If I I'm 43. 43. Or 43 later in this month or later this year. Oh, uh, that's good. So you, you bank it I ahead always, of time. Yeah, I do that I too. I put it yeah. in my head the next year so that when it happens, it's. <laughs> Wait, so you're, only, you're 42 right I'm now? I'm actually 42, but I, you know, in my head, I'm 43. Yeah. I don't know why, but I feel way younger than you because I just turned 43. But well, I feel like you're three, four years older than me. Well, I had 10 years in this country before you did. To- oh, it's a country thing. It's a passport. He likes to rub, rub that in my face all the time. Do you have time. any kids? 
I do. I have three kids. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and I came to this country when I was seven. So he likes to pretend. Seven years. Oh, uh, right. He's more right. American. More than American. I. Yeah, yeah. He's true blue. You can tell. <laughs> Just you can smell it. You know the patriotism. Yeah, I always feel uh, younger than my friends who have kids, even if they're significantly younger than I am. Because it does age you. It does. Well, and just because I think, you know, we, we calculate age in so many, I mean, uh, unconsciously, I would say we calculate age in interesting ways. Like for me, one thing is, do you have kids? Like how, how much responsibility do you have in your life? To me, that maybe it's not age as much as I respect it in a way. And since I don't have kids, it's like, wow, that guy has kids. He has a job. He has all these responsibilities. There's something I respect about that that makes him feel a little older than me in that way. You know what? I, there's nothing to respect. Uh, look, I, I love, <laughs> I love my kids and I love my life with them. I can't imagine my life without it. But I think that in our society, there is this expectation that you must have kids. You must get married. You must have kids. That's a natural progression of adulthood. And if you don't do that, then you're weird somehow, uh, you know, you're not really abiding by society's rules. But I admire people like you who don't, you know, follow the social convention. You do what you want to do. You pursue a different life. And your life is so incredibly different from mine. Um, but, you, you know, you, you've traveled the world. You've seen so many different things. You've experienced many things. I can't just run off to Kashmir or go live in Barcelona for a year or two. I, I can't do that. Um, my kids have to go to school. Yeah. Uh, they're very entrenched in their, in their daily lives. Um, so I find what you do very admirable and courageous in many respects. And I think people can be completely happy without having children. Oh, I agree. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, it, in fact, there are a lot of people who have kids, I think, who are kind of going through the motions because this is society's expectation of what they should do. And they're either not quite ready for it or they're, they're not financially able to do all the things that they want to do. Yeah. It has a lot of stresses in their lives. So, uh, you know, I think people should be very careful when they have children. Um, make sure that you're totally ready for it and yeah. that you're fully aware of all the responsibilities that come with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think uh, you're right. It's, it's not, it's something you should only do if you really, really want to do it. Yeah. And there's no and, question. And even if you really do want to do it, you do it, then you're like, Oh shit, whatever. What, what have I done? I done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So look, I mean, if, of course I can't do this, but what I would love to do is to have a little bit of both. Yeah. Right. Because it's the same thing for marriage. You know, so, so some people are very happy who are married. There are people who are single that, are, that desperately want to be married. There are married people who desperately want to be single. I mean, if you can have a little bit of everything, it'd be great. You know, life with kids, life without kids, being yeah. married with not being married. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you soliciting uh, Chris to come and like babysit your kids for a month? I, I that think that's what it now? is. Yeah. I'm, I'm being set up for Listen, like summer vacation. Casilda and I are going to take off for a while. You can watch the kids. You don't mind. Here's their schedule. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here's what they need to be picked up. Here's when ballet classes. Here's right. Right. If, yeah. if it were only that easy, uh, the, the, the fact is, um, if I did that, I would miss my kids terribly. Yeah. And after the first two days, I, I'd, I'd say, we got to go back home. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Once you have them, it's too late. Yeah. But well, we also, we also have the uh, social, the social norms you say is to have kids. And society tells us you get married, you have kids, and so on and so forth. So the life that Chris is leading is looked down or frowned on. And we have the weight of society telling us that what we're doing is right and what you're doing is wrong. And so you have to deal with that. And maybe in the circles you travel and, you know, as who you are. I didn't know my life was a disaster. Yeah. No, we were living an anomalous life in that regard. And when you, when you break out of that pattern of what the expectation is, 
uh, there's this sense like you're doing, you're not doing the right thing. And also there's this sense like we're doing, we are doing the right thing. So for those of us who have kids, if we do have these questions and think, gosh, it would be better. If, I wish I didn't have these kids. Or I wish I didn't have these responsibilities. You're made to feel guilty about that mm -hmm. and feel horrible about those feelings and like, no, that's wrong. And for me, that ties into the stuff you talk about in your book, which is that, you know, society has created all these expectations on us uh, that are anathema to our nature. Mm -hmm. which for hundreds of thousands of years we were going about a certain way and then the last 10,000 years is we're saying oh okay that's all out the window we're gonna you have to do it this way now right. and you also if if uh, if you have any feelings that are rooted in the experience of humanity for the vast majority of human experience then there's something wrong with you when in fact as you point out in your book that's something right with you. Actually, yeah. that's what is correct. Well, uh, look, I mean, I think at some intuitive level that I didn't even articulate to myself, I've always known or believed what you wrote in the book, which is the reason why I found it so compelling because you put it, I mean, you articulated it so well, it's backed up by research. And uh, I mean, Malcolm and I are, are huge fans of your book and we've discussed it ad nauseum and Steve is like the, the biggest <laughs> advocate for I love it for your book on on the Young Turks whenever yeah. Jenk starts talking about how you know it's <laughs> There he is. There's speaking, speaking of Jank, come on in, Jank. Uh, you guys in an elevator? Yeah, yeah, yeah podcast, but, whatever. It's Chris Ryan. I, I can pause yeah. it. Yeah. All right, we're back with Tangentially Speaking after that rude interruption by uh, by Jank, who, whose office we're sitting in. <laughs> Unbelievable, the gall. How dare he want to use his own office? Um, I'll take advantage of the, of the uh, interruption to say that the opening song, I always forget to mention this because I don't hear the song, you know, until it airs. And then I think, damn, I forgot to mention. That song is by Carsey Blanton. It's called Smoke Alarm. And uh, you can download it and her other music at her website, carcyblanton.com, C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. And she's got a really cool thing where you basically pay what you want and download what you want. And if you love it, you can go back and put some more money in the tip jar. She's she's a really cool person, actually. And that song is fantastic. And if, if you uh, like her voice and like her style, you can check the archives. I did a whole show with her where she plays and plays a couple songs, including Smoke Alarm. We're going to do that a little later, right? You guys are going to play? You got your spoons? You got your... Yeah. I'm fascinated by that concept where where you provide some sort of product or service and you tell your you know customer, pay what you think is right. Yeah. Um, and then you have obviously the freeloaders who pay nothing. Right. And then I imagine you would have some people who are overly generous and they pay extra. But the vast majority I imagine would pay somewhere slightly lower than what they think they should pay just to get some sort of deal. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think they've done that work out. They did this. Um, there's a, some restaurant did this in Kansas City or St. Louis or something. I don't remember. What, it was a yeah. Panera. Right. They did this. And I heard about and, But they did have a suggested price. Like, and, but you don't have to pay that. You can pay more. You can pay less. And there were freeloaders. But the vast majority of people, I think, paid more. Exactly. No, they, oh. they, they paid like they very close to the right amount. And maybe um, a little bit more. I'm yeah. not sure. But they, they definitely got back just what they would have expected. Or, you know, or, or maybe more than they would have. Yeah. If they had just had a typical price, you know, I I think this is uh, the wave of the future, right? You guys, I'm sure, know about Louis C.K.'s thing where he released right. his his last concert tape, and he made more money from that quicker. He made so much money that after like two days or something, he he decided to give a million of it away to some charity. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> Not of the comedy show, but of the the money, the, the money a million dollars exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, but 
Hey, we were talking about during the break. This always happens, right? We were talking about uh, during the break. We were having this fascinating conversation about coincidences and whether they were just mathematical uh, random events or whether there's some sort of sub sub realm of the world or super realm where things are connected in ways we can't understand. I uh, maybe six months ago, I got an email from a guy who was doing, uh, trying to raise some money on Kickstarter to do a film, an independent film about being a registered sex offender. Now this guy had, his name's Kevin, I can't remember, Kevin something. He, uh, but you can, you can Google registered sex, American sex offender, I think is the name of his film. So he emailed me, told me a story, and I said, look, you know, you can go ahead and, he was asking for an interview. I said, you can, you can say I've granted you an interview. And if that helps you raise the money, then, you know, you'll do the film and we'll do the interview. It worked. So then next time I was in LA, we did the interview. His story is he was 19. He was a good kid, you know, choir, literally a choir boy in Texas, uh, virgin, met a girl online who was 15. They decided they were going to have sex. She was not a virgin. She was sexually active. He went to her house. Her mom was working or something. They're having sex. First time ever this guy's had sex. Mom comes home, catches them, calls the cops. Yeah. All right. So for the rest of his life, he's a registered sex offender. Yeah. As if he had committed all sorts of disgusting, horrible things to children. Just like all those people have to register right. everywhere he goes and has to let the neighbors know. Knock on the door. Conversation. Yeah. Hi, I'm moving yeah, in. I'm talking to my neighbors anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, that's why I'm so pissed off about this whole sex offender registry because they over-register people. No, it's bullshit. I want to know who the dangerous people are. Although that's another discussion about whether it's a civil liberties violation. Right. Assuming that it's not. Right. The list is useless when they include people like this kid. Yeah, and and there are thousands of people yes. like this. There's yeah. more people like that than there are actual like monsters. Right. So this list is kind of pointless. And, and while he he got uh, probation, I think he got like two or three years probation, right? And 90 days in jail or something. And he said that during his probation, he had to have weekly uh, counseling, group counseling sessions with guys who actually had raped babies and done all this horrible stuff. And at the beginning, it was like an Alcoholic Anonymous kind of thing, where at the beginning you say, hi, my name's whatever, and I'm a rapist. And, and part of the litany that he had to repeat every week for two or three years or whatever it was, was that I forcibly inserted my penis into an unwilling 15 year old or underage girl, which wasn't true. Right. He was being forced to lie about his experience as a condition of not doing hard time. Anyway, that, that wasn't the point of the story. So the point of the story. So I, I do the interview with this guy and afterwards we're talking and uh, asked him when he left Texas and he said he'd been living in Virginia for a few years. And uh, he, he was sort of like a protege of this guy who wrote a book called Radical Honesty. I know this guy, really interesting guy. Did yeah. you see the profile of him on This American Life? No, I did not, but I've, I've, read, I've watched his, pit potter, uh, his YouTube video that I know about. Okay, really interesting. really interesting guy. Well, I knew about him. I mean, this rang a bell for me because This American Life had a TV show for two seasons, which I highly recommend you check out. It's, it's on YouTube and that every episode is just mind blowing. It's fantastic. And one of the uh, episodes, I guess each one has like three stories. And in one of them, the story's about this guy 
who ran for Congress against uh, who's the the only Jewish Republican Cantor Eric Cantor in Virginia, right? And he did really well. He won twenty five percent of the vote with no party affiliation because the Democrats refused to endorse him at the last minute because he does these radical honesty workshops in which people get naked and talk about their own bodies, yeah. right? Um, Anyway, so he did really well. And the, and the thing is so charming the, because he's a politician or he wanted to be a politician who never lies. Yeah, he, he, he refuses to lie. So the interviews with him are hilarious. Yeah, you know, they're, they're so awful and unexpected. Yeah. He's, it's, it's, it's the antithesis of what you expect from politicians. Exactly. Where everything is so guarded. I mean, look at Obama. Yeah. I mean, has he said anything unguarded in you know, the past 20 years? Yeah. So anyway, so, uh, so I said, oh, I know that guy, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Then a month later, I get an email from out of the blue from as I do from a woman who says, hey, I just wrote a blog about being a woman, semi-famous. I'm a musician and I've decided to just come out of the closet about being a sexual being. I like sex. I don't care who knows it. My husband, my boyfriend and I have an open thing and I just wrote this thing. I thought maybe you'd like to read it. I read it. It was fantastic, really articulate. I linked to it. Lots of people saw it. And then she and I started talking and I told her, I said, I'd love to interview you for my podcast. I'm going to do this podcast. something. And she says, yeah, that'd be great. And do you need music, theme music? And I said, ah, maybe, yeah, I don't know. I, I listen to your stuff. I like your stuff. So she, she sent me the songs and maybe this is a appropriate, you know, because it's all this, I don't know if you guys have listened to the lyrics, but the lyrics to the the theme song are, um, hey, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you're going to feel, say what you're going to say, because you're going to die one day, right? So it's all this carpe diem kind of thing. So I, I put a thing up on Twitter. It's, uh, it's YOLO. It's the that. Don't say carpe diem. The kids Is that what YOLO means? You only live once. Oh, well... <laughs> I thought it was some Mexican thing, YOLO, <laughs> or Latin. Say, YOLO, I say. Yeah. Okay, so this is a long fucking story, but I'm bringing it to a close. I put up a thing on Facebook saying, hey, I think I'm going to use this song by Carsey Blanton as my theme song for my upcoming podcast. And somebody writes back and says, oh, yeah, she's great. I love her music. By the way, you should check out her dad's book, Radical Honesty. <laughs> her dad is her dad is Brad Blanton wow the radical honesty guy that is pretty good that isn't is that good wild so we were talking about coincidences during the thing during the break there and uh Steve yeah. Steve you were going to tell us just briefly what we were talking about as you pointed out and I was saying that coincidences have to happen. What would be weird is if coincidences didn't happen because mathematically there are millions and billions and billions upon billions of potential coincidences that could be happening every moment that don't, and so occasionally they actually do. And then Or they do, but we're not aware of. Or they do well I'm sure they are happening also we're not right. aware of. And yeah, you'll pass somebody in the street that you know but you don't see You don't them recognize them, them, yeah. And then you were saying that some of these coincidences do have this metaphysical sense of interconnectedness and they they do happen for a reason. They aren't just pure coincidences. And then Steve was about, wanted to tell us about something from his background, which I love this story. I think it's amazing. I think about it all the time. Yeah, so um, I, I purport to be a scientist. I don't like any of this hocus pocus nonsense. I'm not a religious person. But some, okay, so my dad um, used to watch the lottery drawing religiously. I'm like, Dad, why are you watching the lotto drawing? Because he would watch it even if he didn't play. Yeah. I'm like, what is the point? <laughs> it's so weird. 
So <laughs> you're not going to win, Dad. <laughs> so he used to play uh, the pick four in, in Jersey, uh-huh. and then the pick three. So if you if you get the pick three numbers in order, um, you would win roughly three four hundred bucks. If you got them uh, not in order, but the three numbers, you win like seventy eighty bucks around there. And then the pick four, you would win about four thousand dollars, thirty five hundred dollars if you get it in, in a row. If you just got all four numbers not in a row, you win. I forget what it is. But anyway, uh, so he would write down the winning numbers every single day. And then he would stare at them and somehow analyze it. I kept telling him, what happened yesterday or last week has absolutely no bearing on what happens tomorrow. These are random drawings. Right. There's nothing that is going to come of this. And I don't know why, but his directional behavior really bothered me. Mm. And he's like, you be quiet. You think you're so smart. You don't know everything in this world. He goes, he goes I got nothing to all of this. I'm like, right, fine, whatever. So then he, you know, he's also a big believer of dreams and what dreams mean. And again, this is so ridiculous to me. But there's also a cultural element because he comes from Korea, he's Korean, yes. and you're, but you're raised in the United States and you, um. you've been imbued with American culture, and so there's that tension as well. And, and where's your dad coming from, like, personally, professionally? Is he a... a Engineer or uh, he's, a, he's been a merchant his whole life. So he's a business he, guy. Yeah, he's a business guy. So so he works with numbers. So he, yeah, he works with numbers, and and he would purport to have so-called good dreams and bad dreams. Mm. And on days where he had a good dream, he would go play, and on the, on bad dream days, he would not play. And of course, he doesn't win every single time, but he's won a couple of times here and there on the little big threes and big four. But one time, he goes to play a big four number. And the woman at the register where he was buying the ticket, for whatever reason, she mistakenly presses the wrong button so that uh, she prints out 20 tickets in the same number. And now it's $20 for, you know, these 20 tickets instead of $1. Mm. And she's like, oh, I'm really sorry. Should I just board these out? Bear in mind also, they did not have a lot of money, and your mother was on this case about spending all this money. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very, very poor. And my mom was pissed, and my dad was trying to make a quick buck, but I can't make one. Right. Um, so my dad says, no, I'll, I'll take all 20 tickets. Uh, maybe he didn't get And I couldn't believe it, but that day, that number hits. So now he has 20 tickets, each worth roughly $3,700. So that's like $75,000. Right. So I was shocked. And again, total coincidence, right? But this is the only time in his life, in fact, it's the only time I've ever heard of where someone went to go buy lotto tickets and cashier yeah. prints. Yeah. 20 of the exact same ticket. Yeah. And then that ticket happens to win. And yeah. He's at least to buy them. I mean, yeah. like, normally you'd be like, no, I just want one. Why would I need 20? Right, right. It's, it's unbelievable. It feels yeah. like the universe really wanted to give him some money. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was really weird. And then, and then uh, another time, uh, he played uh, the pick six. Now, the pick six, the, the jackpots, this is in Jersey, like you know, a couple of decades ago. The jackpots weren't that big. They're like three to five million dollars. Mm. It's not one of these huge mega million jackpots. Right. But um, but again, he went through all this ridiculous analysis of all these numbers, and, and then he had a particularly big dream and seemed to go play. So what happens is he he gets five out of the six numbers correct, and the sixth number he's off by one. Ooh. It's like the winning number is like twenty one, you get to twenty two, something right. like that. Uh, and for that, he won ten thousand dollars, and he was. Because he felt like he blew it. Right. It was his one chance to get all the numbers right, and he almost got it right. And I was like, no, like, she'd be happy that like, he won $10,000. He goes, no, 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 I got that. 
should have known. Part of the story. Yeah. The part that I find amazing about the first initial win. Yeah, well, but yeah, what he, the money he needed. Yeah. To so, so all, all of this started uh, early on because my dad didn't gamble because we were really, really poor. And uh, to give a quick background of the story, uh, my dad became in Korea when I was seven and lived on a little trailer in Virginia with like, a bunch of other relatives. My dad, you know, he was 42 when he came, but he was a huh. freaking dishwasher. Uh, he made no money. Do you speak English? No, I mean, no, he, that's he, rough. he didn't have an education in Korea. So, so there are a lot of things going against him. So it was, it was a tough life. And they saved up just enough to open up a little tiny restaurant in a food court on the flea market. In and, outside of Trent, New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. And, and they were just short. They just didn't have enough money to uh, finish out the of the uh, restaurant uh-huh. and you know you know the whole it was, it was gonna open pretty soon and they just had nowhere to turn they were short three thousand dollars with no relatives no friends and the money and my mom was totally depressed right. they had already put in what little money they had into the place but they didn't have enough to finish right. cost there were some cost overruns so my dad uh played a lot of that night and my mom was furious oh yeah. oh and my mom my mom was always like the quiet Asian woman who would never like raise her voice to her husband. And like that was a little bit of an ass. I feel like yelling at her if she ever, you know, talked back to him. So that day she was angry. She was like just screaming at him and saying, you know, this is not the way you can't make a fast bug. And, you know, I can't believe you're being such a lazy loser, basically. Oof. And uh, my, I, I, I was scared. You know, I thought my dad would be you know, irrational and just going to be bad. But he just kind of stormed off. And that night, we're all at my aunt's house and watching a lot of one again. And unbelievable. He, the pick four number that he played that day, he wins. And the, the, and the prize amount was right around $3,500, $3,700. So we had just enough money to finish the little tiny restaurant. And that little restaurant actually helped us you know, make a little bit of money. And then they sold that at the right time. And then, then they had enough money to buy a 7-Eleven store, which actually did very well. And then that was like my 10th grade of my life. And that's the first time in my life where we actually had some money. Before that, was totally poor. I, I, wow. I, I was on board of welfare after wow. school. But after we got to 7-Eleven, everything changed. So, so yes, we fulfilled the American dream. But it was through some seriously good luck so with the lotto. And we had, you know, had some handouts. We had, you know, we were on welfare. And we, you know, had some family members who helped them with those guy here. So uh, we didn't do it on our own, but yeah. um, I don't understand how. So let me ask you a question. Did you or your mother ever see the winning ticket? What did you really see it? Yeah. Uh, I, I was holding it in my hand. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I'm thinking his dad robbed a 7-Eleven <laughs> and had to explain the money. <laughs> but I've been watching Breaking Bad, so that's how I think these days. What yeah. I think is interesting, you know, see, they're living in poverty. I mean, really, and if not for this winning lottery ticket, they can't finish that story. They don't get right. the 7-Eleven. Right. Goes on to Cornell, and then he, you know, he gets a law degree at UCLA, and becomes a prosecutor, and then a young person. And all of this might not have happened. It's right. a very good chance that none of this would have happened if not for that one winning lottery ticket. Yeah, he did not want his dad to buy, and his mom was giving his dad a hard time. But and they were right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Statistically, of course, it was a dumb move. Now I wonder how that affected your parents' marriage. 
<laughs> well, it was for the better because uh, when you have some money, yeah. things are not so tight. There's less fighting and yeah. it's happier. Yeah, but your poor mom. <laughs> I mean, she, you know, the one day she puts her foot down, yeah, like yeah. the universe comes out and screws her, you know, yeah, I mean, knife in the back. <laughs> if it were me, like anything <laughs> after that, if I were your dad. Yeah. Exactly. Like, hey, listen, why don't you, uh, shouldn't you be doing your take the car? Like, oh, wait, are you telling me what <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're right around me. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. And the crazy part was, like, to this day, I cannot convince my dad that, you know, random number generation uh, has nothing to do with the numbers that are generated the day before or the week before. Like, he totally believes everything interconnected. It drives me crazy. Yeah. But he's like, hey, did I win the lotto or did you win the lotto? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Wait, did, you, did you go to Cornell? That, yeah, that is a form of argument. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, the results. Look at the results, yeah. you know. Talk all you want, son, but yeah. who who's holding the ticket? Yeah. But yeah. it's usually supposed to be the other way. You look at trial and error and it's yeah. supposed to prove that science is right. Right. It's not supposed to prove that, this, you know, your dreams. Wild are, shots. Yeah. 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 Yes, he's had significant lottery win. I mean, and it has significantly impacted our life for the better. So it's crazy. I still think your dad's a criminal. I, I think I think he's robbing banks or something and just has to explain the money. I, I used to go out with this woman who had, uh, she was Andorran, and her uncle had all this unexplained money. Andorra is a tiny country in the Pyrenees between France and Spain, but they don't know. The principality, yeah, which which is a tax haven. It's It's a good place to have lots of, you know, unexplained money if you're going to have some. And, uh, his his excuse was always that he won the lottery, but no one ever saw any tickets or anything. It was just like, oh, you won the lottery again. Wow, that's the fourth <laughs> time, Uncle Criminal. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, this, this is what I want to what I want to ask about it for you. Like when I point to that moment in Steve's life that had a huge impact on his life, it changed the trajectory dramatically. Right. And do you look back on moments in your life that are like that, where you didn't have any control over them, but if not for that. You know, oh, it would have been in a hugely different direction. Oh, yeah. I mean, you'd be a, a monk oh, yeah. somewhere in the, you know, Thailand, or uh, maybe you'd be, uh, maybe you'd be just sleeping with all sorts of women all over the place and not have to having consequence free sex. Oh wait. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know what? I mean, look, we see this in sports all the time, right? I mean, just a weird balance of the ball can determine whether a team wins the championship or doesn't win the championship. The immaculate and, reception. Yeah. And it forever changes the perception of the winning team, the winning yeah. player, and yeah. the losing team, the winning and the losing yeah. player. And, and they had no control over this random, well, seemingly random balance of the ball. And it happens all the time. I mean, yeah. there's such a thin line between being a winner and a loser or, the, right. or, or being perceived in that right. way by society. What's the line that... Uh uh, fortune favors the prepared mind or something right. like that. Yes. Yeah. But this is just, they're both prepared and it's just which way the ball bounces. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was telling a story recently. I, was, I mentioned I was on Joe Rogan's podcast and I, we were talking about this and, um, you know, I was talking about fe feeling a sense of gratitude, like feeling really lucky, you know, that a lot of, I took a lot of crazy risks when I was young. I hitchhiked from New York to Alaska and back twice, you know, and like all sorts of crazy ass people pick me up and, yeah. you know, I've taken, were you forced to perform oral sex on anyone? Not forced. Not forced, <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> ass, grass, or gas, all right for free, come on. Right. <laughs> Those are some long rides, let me tell you. Um, but no, I've done dumbass shit. I mean, I, 
I rented a motorcycle in Northern Thailand and wrote, this is after not having ridden a motorcycle since I was 15, and rode all around the Golden Triangle, which is full of like private heroin armies and stuff, you know, on my own, like going back through the jungle at night. I, I almost ran into an elephant, which is, I mean, I, I've just done a lot of dumbass high risk stuff. And that's, is, that's not even just like because of the, the drug trafficking. If you're on a motorcycle and you're in the middle of nowhere and you get in an accident, you're fucked. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I did. I took um, uh, what's it called? Para paragliding, para where you jump Paracetamol? off a mountain. Yeah, no, not behind a boat, no. but jumping hang, off a mountain. Hang gliding, hang gliding. Well, but with a parachute. No, paragliding. Yeah, yeah paragliding uh, in India, right? And so, it, you know, if I had been hurt, like the nearest hospital. Indian hospital was like four hours away, you know, like, yeah, it wasn't, but it was cheap, you know. There you cheap. go. Yeah. Um, anyway, what the hell is the so point? You're taking, you're taking oh, oh, so, so Joe and I were talking and I told him the story about, that I wrote about in Psychology Today about uh, when I first took my, my first big international trip. I'd saved up all this money. I was working in New York in the Diamond District and I saved up all this money. I quit my job and I said, okay, I'm going to go see the world, right? Backpack around the world. I had about $15,000 in cash and it was in a money belt. And um, I had it in cash because someone had told me you could get a better uh, exchange rate for cash than for traveler's checks. And I wanted to you know, extend my trip as long as possible. So, uh, and so I was staying in this, this is like a week after arriving in India. I'm in this little cheap guest house in Old Delhi near the train station, which is mind-blowing right like the street is full of you know cows and elephants and bicycles and rickshaws and trucks and it's just like wow but uh, at night I would sleep with my money belt under my pillow because I was afraid somebody would come into the room and steal it if I left it anywhere else but I knew they wouldn't get their hand under my pillow without me noticing um, and I had a, an early train ride to Kashmir talking heads yeah uh, Srinagar I was going to Srinagar and uh, so it's a long story, but basically what happened was I got up, uh, checked out of the hotel, was sitting in the hotel, the guest house was sitting in the train station at six o'clock in the morning, waiting for my train, having a chai. I was already sweating because that's India. And this bead of sweat rolled down the small of my back and I went to touch it. And where's my money belt? I left it under my pillow. I checked out a week into my big round the world yeah, trip. You think you were sweating before that? <laughs> yeah, so oh. I ran back with this full backpack, ran back, went up to the room, like knocking on the door. People speaking Hindi wouldn't let me in, wouldn't open the door. Oh my God, I go down to the front desk, and by now the, the owner was up, and he was a Sikh guy. And he says to me, hey, what's, what's going on? What's going on? I said, oh, I left some something in the room, I have to get, he said, oh, I've already left the room to someone else, what did you leave? I said, uh, I left some, some papers, important papers. He said, really, what papers? I said, well, I, actually, I left my passport. He said, you left your passport in the room? Are you crazy? I said, no, I just, I forgot, I left it there on the bed under the pillow. He said, really, your passport, anything else? And he's looking at me like, you know, I remember his eyes. They were, they were, uh, they were intelligent. Uh, he was looking for something, and and I felt like I'm being tested here, right? Yeah. And I also felt like I'm a fucking idiot, and there's no sense in pretending I'm not. You know. And I said I left my money, and he said money. How much money? I said all my money. How much? 
$15,000. Do you know how much $15,000 is in India? You could buy this hotel and three more like it. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. Um, can, reached, can, you, can we get the lecture later after we go upstairs to check the room, yeah, please? No, he reaches under, hands me my money belt. Yeah. It's all there. Yeah. So anyway, so I was telling the story to Joe, and, and I always think of this story as this random stranger who could have chosen to keep the money. What am I going to do? Call the cops? You know, <laughs> in India? Yeah, I left the money. I could hear them laughing from here, right? Um, the fact that he gave it back to me, it's like that lucky bounce of the ball. You were saying the team has a whole different... I think of myself as this guy who, you know, went out, this intrepid explorer, and went out into the world and always landed on my feet and, you know, could read people and could deal with dangerous, difficult situations. and all. That's my self-image. But if this guy had kept the money, a week into my big round-the-world trip, the first one, I would have been calling my parents, collect, <laughs> you know, asking them to, you know, charge a ticket for me to come home and live in their basement in Pennsylvania. It would have been a different trip. Now, Joe, Joe actually said something that I hadn't considered. He was like, well, you never know, man. You know, maybe your trip would have been even better. You know, maybe you wouldn't have called your parents. And uh, somebody's phone is. Yes, Jake's phone. Phone. <laughs> Let's turn it off. That was Jenks' phone, ladies and gentlemen. The young Turk. <laughs> now, what are you going to call him when he's not so young anymore? Are you, you going to be a middle-aged Turk? Yeah, I, I joke with him all the time. I'm like, look, you got to drop the word young. First of all, it's, a, it's, it's offensive to some people uh, who perceive the young Turks as being uh, genocidal maniacs. Uh, for other people, it has a different meaning. But look at yourself. I was like, you have a lot of gray hair now. That's uh, true. You've got an Armenian yeah. hosting one of your shows. That's an interesting yeah. twist. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 she doesn't, uh, they don't like that back in Glendale so much. <laughs> yeah, really? The, uh, the Armenian community also hot on uh, Anna Kasparian. By the way, I love random conspiracy theories that are based in zero facts. So there's some, there's, there's some postings on YouTube and elsewhere where I've seen that say that Anna uh, is a is a dirty Armenian trader who is working for the Young Turks because they pay her two million dollars a year, which is that's all she gets. Absurd. Okay, <laughs> I would totally do that if I were Anna. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd betray right. anyone for two million. Yeah, I'd do it for like a, you know, I'd do it for a hundred bucks. <laughs> And there are other theories out there about how George Soros is pouring money into our company. No, I wish. I wish. I, George Soros hasn't given us a penny, okay? But there's theories about how he, he funds our operations, and that's why we're such a liberal bent. It's hilarious. Well, I, yeah. George Soros funds this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how, why you guys aren't getting any money. Did, did, he, did he pay for the microphones? Yeah, <laughs> and these, these puffy little covers on them. Yeah, yeah multicolored. Yeah, well, so the question is, what is going to happen to the name of the Young Turks? Because he's not so young anymore. You need something more permanent. I would suggest the Fat Turks because <laughs> that's probably going yeah. to... It would be easy to change the logo. <laughs> T, you know, what is it? And that's not going to change anytime well, soon. Well, TYT, I mean, I like TYT, so we, we'll keep the TYT network and for the show, I think we should call it just The Turks. Which but does fine. anyone look at TYT and, and see tit? I think they say tight. They say tight. <laughs> tight. <laughs> Keep it tight. <laughs> but go back to uh, Joe's point about maybe your trip would have been better. Well, Joe, maybe. Yeah, I mean, Joe's thing was like, I mean, you know, we got into this whole thing about gratitude. I mean, right. for me, uh, a sense of gratitude keeps me grounded, right? Because I do feel I've been incredibly fortunate in so many different ways. And to take credit for that 
I turn into an asshole, even more of an asshole in in short order. But you know what, that guy, the 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 what is it, brothel owner? What was it the? the <laughs> he, you know, he got something for that too. You know that well, was you know not not, not financially, much. not remunerative. I offered. I I pulled no, out a no, few hundred I mean, bucks, I mean, and he was like, no, 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 no. no. I mean, because I because yeah. he, you're saying it was a test for you, but it was a test for him too. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and when I wrote the essay, that's how I ended it. I said I would be someone completely different today, as would he. And, and yeah. like, and you did him a favor also potentially. By testing him that way, and and, well, and, well, and plus he got to be kind of a dick to you, which is fun. Always fun to see somebody sweat. Well, you know what? I I think if I had been a dick, he probably would have kept the money. Yeah, I think he was looking like, all right, who is this? Is this like some spoiled? Uh, yeah, and I was, but, right? But I I do feel he was testing me to see whether I was the kind of person who would remember it thirty years down the road or not. All right, look, it's definitely a a positive result for you, but let's not pretend that it's a positive result for him necessarily. Maybe he regrets every single day. <laughs> <laughs> I should have kept the fucking money. Like if he was in your dad's situation and the 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 guest house was about to close or be over, you know, yeah. and then he this money that's right. like would have been like him winning the lottery. Like, and he would, hey, honey, I won the lottery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, But but I totally agree with you, Chris. I think those kind of experiences really kind of shape your view of the world and your, yeah. and your view of yourself as well. Because um, I feel like in my life things have always kind of bounced the right way, and you know I feel very grateful for that. Uh, I mean, just little things like, you know, the fact that my parents came here with nothing. I mean, they came with $20, a $10 bill, a two $5 That's bill. That's amazing, man. And then, and then they were able to, through hard work and some good luck, they put me through an Ivy League school. I, I graduated with no student loans at all, which freed me to do whatever I wanted to do. From Cornell, and, yeah, which is expensive. Very expensive, Hell. yeah. And then I came yeah. out to LA and, you know, I went to a good school here. I had a very positive experience. I've, I've made great friends mm-hmm. who have lasted a lifetime yeah. and, you know, um, I spent one summer in D.C. working uh, as an intern for the federal prosecutor. I'm sorry, the federal public defender's office. Oh, really? And I had to spend all my time in the worst parts of crime-ridden D.C. at Prince George's County, Maryland, right. and going, you know, investigating crime sites and talking with the shadiest characters. And the whole time I was doing that, um, I never once felt scared or threatened. I never really believed anything bad would happen. Mm. Um, and, and I just kind of trusted them. And these really scary people sometimes uh, that I would run into, they were by and large very polite, very nice to me. Yeah. And nothing ever remotely bad happened. Yeah. You know, so I kind of go through life kind of trusting and believing in people. You know, I, I do the same thing. I mean, obviously hitchhiking to Alaska and back, you know. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, I, I definitely put myself... I made myself vulnerable, right. you know, as, as you did in, in that job. And the experiences I had, far from hurting me, enriched me yeah. so much. And one of the most important ways is that at, at a young age, I learned to be suspicious of people telling me to be afraid of something mm-hmm. or someone, right? And then I, like, I went to prison in Alaska. I was in a, I was in a state, I think it was a state or federal prison, I don't know which, um, for uh, four days. And that, it was a medium security prison. It was serious. And man, it, again, it was one of those situations where I was with this other guy and we, it was a stupid thing we did. We, we were shoplifting and we got caught and one thing led to another and I had a knife and I don't know, whatever. And this cop busted us and took us to prison. 
and uh, we had to wait for the magistrate. Uh, and it was a um, uh, Memorial Day weekend, so yeah, and they only come in on canoe. Yeah, or, exactly. Know, <laughs> dog sled, <laughs> dog sled, floating ice flow. But anyway, that you know, we we were like, well, are we going to lie? Are we going to tell, tell tell them we killed prisoner's dilemma? This is your prisoner's dilemma right here. Yeah, well, the prisoner's dilemma is a different thing. This was our prisoners, the you know what they're real. Yeah, no, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. Um, but no, we we were like, well, are we going to tell these guys, you know, to keep them away from us, like tell them something that'll oh. scare them, oh, you yeah. know, like oh, we killed you know sure. nine people, or they say we did, and then it's like, no, man, we got to just tell the truth. You, you know, these guys are pros; they're going to know you're lying, and then you're, and then where are you? You yeah. know. So we told the truth, which in my case was that I stolen a Snickers bar. <laughs> and what happened was everybody thought that was hilarious. So I remember like this huge dude was in for murder or something, you know, it was like, hey, don't worry, little man, you know, you're going to be all right. I'll take care of you. And he's got his arm around me. I'm like, oh boy. Okay, well, <laughs> you take care of me. But it ended up being a fantastic experience, a, a really enriching experience. And, and what I learned is that fear attracts danger. Yes and everybody gets it backwards, right? It's like they say dogs can smell fear and yeah. they'll attack you. I think the world's like that. Now, of course, this is something Joe and I were talking about, are there people who also think that, who you know decide to learn to paraglide in India and crash into the cliff face? Yeah, and what do they have to say to me? Like, hey, you've just been really lucky and you think you learned some universal lesson bullshit, man. Yeah. But what, what happens I mean, if you're going to lead a life where you don't make yourself vulnerable? And I think this relates to the conversation we were having earlier about raising children. Right. And when you raise children, there are people who raise their children and try to protect them from everything. And so that they're not put in danger. And our society is so hyper-focused, at least middle-class American white society is so hyper-focused on keeping our kids safe. And people of our generation look back to when we were kids and we rode bikes with no helmets and didn't have yeah. seat belts and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And the hyper-vigilance about safety in our children when... Uh, but you know, but sure, we'll send him off to be with the priest and uh, spend some quality time back in, you know. And so <laughs> yeah. we're yeah. not worried about the things that are really potentially dangerous for them. But if you if you're going to live your life in fear and you're not going to put yourself out there, yeah, you're maybe less likely to get raped by on the side of the road by somebody who picks you up hitchhiking to Alaska. But you also don't. I mean, it's a balance, and you have to. You can't. You can't live your life that way. The thing that freaks me out, and this gets back to kids, as you're saying, is I don't think I could survive having a kid like me. Seriously, I think of the pain that my parents went through, like thinking of me hitchhiking to, in Alaska, you know? Yeah. It's like every night they must have gone to bed thinking he might be dead, you know? You gotta, you gotta be willing to deal with that no matter what your child is doing because that's the reality. That, that's some, I think that's some courage inherent in parenthood that I could never step up to. Honestly, that's that's the worst part of being a parent. I think yeah. uh, is that I mean your happiness is no longer in your own hands right. because it's tied to whether your kids are happy. And of course, if something tragic like Newtown happens right. to your kid, you're you're done. I mean, for right. the rest of your life, you're you're a shattered human being. But even like little things, like even when they have a cold, you feel like this deep sense of like, oh, my poor baby. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just little things like, what if they're just not cool at school or, or they're picked on a little yeah. bit? I mean, you've got no defense. Yeah, I mean, you can't live their life for them. Yeah. And and you know what? They're going to get their hearts broken. There's going to be pain in life. And each time they go through it, um, it's, you know, it's probably in some ways an enriching experience for them. But as a parent, it just it hurts. Do you guys both have yeah. sons? Yeah. I, Steve doesn't have three daughters. I, I have two sons. Yeah. yeah. 
I was talking to a friend of mine, my, my best friend that I've known since we were 15, um, recently. He's got uh, two sons and a daughter, and his oldest son is uh, 16, just turned 16, which is more or less when he and I became buddies. So we were, it, it was this interesting, you know, circuit that was closed. And, uh, and we were talking about this, I don't know whether it's, it's something that happens more frequently or it's just something that gets picked up by the media more frequently, but this whole thing about female high school teachers sleeping with their students. Yeah, or junior high school teachers. Yeah. yeah. Mary Kay Letourneau was a famous one right. in Seattle. Right, who's like now married to the guy yeah, and his kids. kids. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. They made it work, which is what's beautiful. I it think. is beautiful. And some of those women are beautiful. Yeah, they usually are. Jiminy Christmas, <laughs> or at least the ones that get picked up by the media. Again, here's like the coincidences, things you notice, things you don't. Media tends to distort, you know, chooses what we notice and what we don't. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're even if you're if you're a 14 year old high school kid and your teacher comes on to you, you're much more likely to go for it if it's Mary Kay Letourneau as opposed to if it's you know Nurse Ratchet or whatever. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, you're gonna go for the, the 70 year old uh, spinster. I mean, that's you know. Yeah, no, that's although I, the the you know the point there is fourteen year old boys are discerning in their sexual partners. Uh, I know some cheap who would argue with that. Uh, uh, but anyway, the the thing I was saying to my friend, like we were talking about this, and and you know he admitted he's like, yeah, dude, look, when we were fifteen, if that had happened to us, it would have been winning the lottery. Yeah. Like, holy, do-. but I think of my son. And that was, and his son's like super good looking, you know, like the kind of guy. If you're you're a horny high school teacher, that's your guy, yeah. right? And he's like, no, oh, no, that would be, I would not be into that, you know. So it's funny how, as a parent, even like the thing that you would have hoped happened to you, or would have welcomed happening to you. You don't want to happen to your kids. There's there's an internal conflict there that must be well, kind of hard to deal with. This is something I actually talked about on the show. I talked to Steve about in relation to your book, which is when you are a 15 year old yourself and or 16 year old high school student, a boy, and there's girls who you know are willing to get with you and so on and so forth. That's great news. You're excited. That's wonderful. But when you're a father of a 15 or 16 year old girl, yeah, it's uh, oh, in yeah. our society anyway. And that's one thing that reading your book has done for me is made me open. I have a daughter and open to the idea that she is going to be a sexual being and that's okay. And when the time is right for her and so on and so forth, I'm not. I'm much more along the lines of the Dutch. Right. Maybe they're not excited about it, but they're right. not. Good. They want it to be safe and let the right. kids do what they're going to do. You can do do it in our household and so on and so forth. And that's something I talked about on the Young Turks, where I feel like Jenk and JR, who are both parents uh, have uh, of small children, but they are have these retrograde notions about female sexuality and teenagers, especially mm. compared to male sexuality, this double standard. Mm. And then that is where slut shaming begins right. and women, you know, feeling right. bad about their sexuality and all that sort of thing. And it starts with the dads having those jokes about, oh yeah, you can take her out, but better have her back and I'm going to be out there cleaning my shotgun and you, you know, put the fear of God on you and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and so that it's my job as a parent of a girl to not do that. And right. that's one thing I've gotten from your book, which, oh, uh, so great. my daughter thanks you in six years, well, <laughs> seven or eight years, maybe. No. <laughs> and she's 18 now, yeah. right? right? She's 26, yeah. <laughs> as long as you wait till 30, you'll be all right, yeah. honey. So, so Malcolm, you've got a list of things. I came in here, you know, the seat of my pants, just like knowing that it would be impossible not to have an interesting conversation with you guys. And Malcolm walks in, the pro that he is, uh-huh. as the guest, he's got a list. Well, there are a number so of things that I want list? to talk about with, with you. One is, is that I, you know, I loved your book, and we all were, the people here at the Young Turks who read it all were really affected by it. And 
Uh, so you want to talk about it with other people. Right. And one of the things, like I have this friend who I came back from doing the show with you and I started talking to him about the book and I was like, I was like this close, I'm making my fingers really close to each other, to saying, hey, let me get you, I'll get you a copy of the book and so on and so forth. And then I thought to myself, wait a second, I don't, if you give a guy friend a copy of Sex at Dawn, that's implicitly saying, you should read this and I want to sleep with your wife. <laughs> guilty conscience. That sounds like guilty conscience. No, I'm not saying that, that it, it does, but that's the way it would be potentially interpreted. Right. And I have a neighbor, a woman who's a neighbor who I was talking about who's a divorce lawyer. And she talked to you know, I talked to her at a block party about how Facebook has been the best thing that ever happened for her business. Right. And she talks about the couples and what, and I, I was soon after reading your book and I said, you know, monogamy, this enforced monogamy is part of what the, the problem. And, and you know, talking to her about this, saying, oh, you should really read this book. But then again, she's a neighbor and she's married. I'm like, well, you know, let's not, let's not push this because I don't want you to get the wrong message. Yeah, but she's a divorce lawyer, so you always got that angle. No, it was just a professional thing. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll work on that. I'll explain that to my wife. Yeah, but, but so yeah. there's a danger in wanting to talk about your book when you. There's no danger at all. What are you talking about? It's a perfect opportunity. You give the book, if they get that message and they wink at you, then you know you're good. Right. It's all good. Yeah, you can still yeah. feign innocence. Yeah, right? what? It's, it's science. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but you're right. I mean, people do respond to the book very personally. Yeah, you know, for for better or worse. There's Look, no I, I, I get very frustrated with people who don't um, uh, believe what you say in your book. It, you know, the, the the notion that monogamy is a is a cultural construct that's kind of you know imposed upon us and not a natural order of things. And because it's it's like being a climate deny a climate change denier or mm -hmm. or you know arguing that the Earth is flat. It, it, I mean, all evidence is completely on the side of. The, you know us not being monogamous creatures and and we're not saying that we should have a free-for-all of uh, swinger society we're just saying that that these desires to be with other people are totally natural right and and that if we learn to accept that they're natural we can deal with it in a much healthier way right than you know saying oh you are horny for other people other than your spouse you must be a bad person right that's right. not healthy or at you all. don't really love your spouse right yeah. and that's so yeah. stupid yeah. Yeah. And, and look i mean forget everything else in the book the one thing that that you uh talk about that's so for me um so obvious is that Every society, no matter how much they try to prevent people from uh, cheating, with a threat of death and mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, being an outcast and wearing a scarlet letter, it still happens. Right. They cheat no matter what right. because right. that's just the way we're built. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, it, it really shouldn't be any more controversial than arguing that humans evolved to be um, uh, omnivores. Right. You know, it's like that. To me, that's essentially what it is. It's like, okay, obviously, look at our diet, look at our teeth, look at the chemical composition of our saliva, look at our digestive system, look at primates closely related to us that share these similarities. It's pretty clear we evolved to eat, you know. Totally. And that's an excellent analogy. Products. And now, now, culturally, we may decide that we're better off being vegetarians. Exactly. And there's and nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But if you have this urge to eat a piece of meat, it doesn't make you an immoral person. Exactly. Right. So, uh, you know, right. maybe as a culture, we decided monogamy is the best thing. And maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, I don't think it is. But but, but let's suppose that it is. It doesn't mean that these feelings for uh, sexual attraction for others is a an unnatural, immoral thing yeah. that we have to, yeah. you know, just just squash. You know, I, I sometimes get invited on, on TV shows or radio shows or whatever, and they say, you know, let's debunk monogamy. 
And it's like, no, you're missing the point. I'm not here to debunk monogamy. I'm not here to say anything's wrong with monogamy. I'm just saying it's a path that you're choosing, Mm -hmm. right? And it's an uphill path. Understand that. It's exactly what you just said. Understand that and you'll have a better chance of your relationship staying together because you won't blame yourself and each other for these inevitable challenges you're going to face, you know? That's, yeah, that's so really we had, the point. We had Hugo Schweizer on the, on the show, so right. Schwitzer. 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 And he actually articulated really well about this issue with monogamy. He said, monogamy is almost like immortality. Like, we all pursue it. We can't quite achieve it. Um, and his point was that, um, you know, people, when they attach morality so tightly with sex and monogamy, it's so easy to point to someone who's not monogamous and say, bad person, you are immoral. And that's that's very dangerous and a bad thing. On the flip side, you can have a very bad person who is monogamous sure. and that person can pretend and the society will uphold that person as being a virtuous one. Right. And that, you know, monogamy and virtue are not synonymous. No, honesty and virtue are more related to yes. each other. Yeah. And and certainly self knowledge is a big part of virtue as well. So, you know, along those lines I think uh you know, copping to your, I, I did a show once and there were two male panelists and me and we were talking about these issues and after the taping stopped, one of them said, you know, you're, you know, your book's interesting and all that, but I'm completely monogamous and, and I, I love my wife and I, you know, I'm just into my wife. I, and the other guy was like, yeah, me too, man. I'm not completely into my wife. I don't, I'm not monogamous. I, and, and my first reaction was like, yeah, yeah, we're okay. I'm not saying, you know, you shouldn't be, I'm, you know, but then I, after a few minutes I, I was thinking and I said, do you guys want look at porn at all? And they were like, yeah. And I said, so you just look at porn of your wife? <laughs> no. You just look at porn of one, your favorite actress? No. Mm. Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So how monogamous are you, actually? You know? Because we're talking about desire. We're not necessarily talking about behavior. Those right. are different things. One thing that really struck me about your book, and I think when we first met, I mentioned this to you, is that it's, I was not like Steve. I had not thought about these issues really particularly, and it was pretty mind-blowing for me. Uh, and it's one of those books where it's, whatever you thought you knew was wrong. And I love books like that. Whatever you thought you knew about human sexuality, out the window. And and by what you thought you know, I mean what society tells you. And right. other books like that, I mentioned were like uh, uh, Born to Run by oh, Chris McDougall about, about yeah. the you know, human foot and running and all that sort of thing yeah. and the way we do it and, and running shoes. And, and very, that. very similar in some way. Absolutely. It, yeah, I mean, the message. I, yeah. I liked, honestly, I love the way that book's And, and I was in Bato Pilas. I, I was in that canyon. I, oh, really? I, yeah. I Copper Canyon whole, and uh, yeah. the, the two Chihuahua. Tarahumara people, yeah, yeah. these runners. It's a great book. Another one was uh, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, which is about how human civilization developed, or whatever you thought about it, wrong. Uh, Or even, like when I first read Noam Chomsky about uh, American politics and the the idea that maybe the United States government's uh, main objective internationally is not democracy, it's actually the opposite, and I was just like, oh my god, that's totally true. And, but what's really, what struck me about your book and looking at the criticism of it, like for example, Megan McArdle, was that her name? Yeah. Uh, and people who criticize your book, when I read these books, I'm like, well, let's see what the other people are saying, people who are criti- critical of it. And one thing that struck me about people who are critical of your book and about Chomsky and this is, is as far as I can tell, they don't engage you 
on in your arguments. They don't engage your arguments. They don't. They don't say, well, here's what he says, and here's his supporting, you know, the evidence, and it's wrong because of this, and here's my evidence. Right. It's just so visceral, and uh, no, he's wrong, and uh, hate, 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 and emotional, yeah. Yeah. and that makes me say. Wow, I mean, like with Chomsky, there's just they, they they don't engage on what he's talking about. He says, "Here are the documents that say the United States government doesn't want to pursue democracy." And right. people who argue against him, they don't they don't go back and say, "No, he's wrong about it. he's reading those documents incorrectly or whatever." Right. They just say he's shrill. Crazy. He's shrill. He's, he's a communist. Yeah. He's a you know an anarchist or right. whatever you know, throw names around. And so that for me, it just reinforces okay, the message of this book is accurate. Yeah. And. Uh, and so that's one thing I really love about it. But if you go and read the criticism, people like Megan McCarthy, she didn't even read the book as far as I could tell. No, she said <laughs> she said something like, how can you write a whole book, of, you know, debunking monogamy without mentioning jealousy? Right. It's like chapter 10. It's called jealousy, you know? But like, it's so important for her to reinforce that dominant social message, yeah. that monogamy, and because she is invested in it. And yeah. I'm not going to let anything into my bubble, into this shell. Yeah. But, you know, that, that jealousy point is a point that Jenk is hung up on as well. Mm. He's convinced that jealousy is inherent and that that proves that we are monogamous creatures. Right. To, but what, but Jack doesn't think we're necessarily monogamous. He thinks we're somewhere between mono, being monogamous and being polygamous, which right. which my point is, well, what does that mean? That's, uh, that's also known as not monogamous. Yes. <laughs> yeah. for, for the men. Yeah. The, the beauty of polygamy, the way most people yeah. understand it, is that the women are monogamous and right. the men aren't. Right. And that, that's sort of the historically you know, verified vi- version of Human but I think you address that jealousy issue really well because it's totally true. I mean, I think our society cultivates and reinforces and also encourages the feelings of jealousy for your lover or slash spouse. But for example, let's say, but there's like, there's jealousy between friends. So let's say the three of us were hanging out and I really, you know, value my friendship with you and I'm a little bit jealous that Malcolm and you are hanging out without me. Like that kind of jealousy is laughed at and frowned upon by by society. And they're like, what are you, a loser? Like why are you crying about your two buddies hanging out without you? And so that kind of jealous feeling is always, you know, um, uh, subverted. And, and not encouraged at all. Right. But the kind of jealousy for your wife or your girlfriend uh, is, I mean, there's songs. I mean, every single song's about jealousy. Yeah. You know, your one true love. Yeah, and and, and yeah, yeah, and us against the world. And we'll, yeah. I'll never betray you for another. Uh, you know, I'll throw my parents under a bus for you. I mean, it's just, <laughs> just ridiculous stuff. I haven't heard that one. Yeah. <laughs> the, one, of the, one of the problems with your book I have is that before reading your book, one of my favorite songs is I'd Rather Go Blind by Etta James. Oh, yeah. And she, what she says, I'd rather go blind than see you walking with another woman right. you know, and uh, and uh, you know it's it's devastating and heartfelt and you know she, she was a magnificent singer and uh, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, rest in peace at it but uh, but now reading your book I'm like fuck that go you know go blind go somewhere else go get some guy your own <laughs> 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 Song. My love is kind of like, yeah, it's like one, you know, the one right. and only. Yeah. Yeah. You guys know the song. One of the songs I wanted to talk about in the book, but um, I figured I went gone on enough with the songs, was uh, the Outcast song, um, uh, My Baby Don't Miss Around. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. Hey, yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah. Right. You, you ever really pay attention to those lyrics? Yeah, you to, you emailed me about this. I looked it up. I was like, well, what do you know? It's yeah. not just about uh, shaking a Polaroid picture. Yeah, no. It's it's about the, the difficulty of having a relationship. The, the, it begins, my baby don't mess around because she loves me so, and this I know for sure. Right? And then he doubts himself. But does she really want to, but can't stand to see me walk out the door? 
So is she not messing around because she wants me to stay as opposed to, you know, um, don't try to fight the feeling because the thought alone is killing me right now. Thank God for mom and dad for sticking two together because we don't know how. Damn, that's sad. And then there's another thing where he says, um, if what they say is nothing lasts forever, then what makes love the exception? Oh, why, oh, why are we so in denial when we know we're not happy here? It's a devastating song. Yeah, but it's, a, it's so upbeat sounding. Exactly. And nobody pays attention to lyrics no, anyway. Everyone's dancing. And, it's and like, their version <laughs> is better. Andre 3000, uh, his, uh, his version is better than yours. I like I like him doing it better than you. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, he does rap better than me. But he's had more practice, let's be yeah, honest. He's probably had more practice. Did, did I send you the link to, to the, the bearded hippie singer? Yes, you did. Yeah, no, that's a good version. I mean, that's, he gets the sadness of the yeah. song. Yeah. Guys, I'm totally jealous <laughs> that you have this whole relationship outside yeah. of me. You guys are emailing yeah. each other. You're such a this loser. Bullshit. I'm so jealous. I'm so angry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you want to produce the point? You can have you can be emailing everybody all you want. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, boy. We, we, but it's a great song, too. I mean, on that level, song. and, yeah. you know, if you're willing to investigate the lyrics, it's a great song. And it's just a great song to dance to as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so can we talk about this on, on this podcast about your... Talk about anything. Uh, well, so this book that you wrote and the celebrity that, that, that came with it, I mean... Celebrity, yeah. So it, it's kind of uh, opened the doors for you to lead a bit of a rock star's life, no? Yeah, a bit, a bit. I mean, you know, and that's really one of the reasons I'm in L.A. now. Um, I used to come to L.A. a lot because my fam- I've got lots of family here, and I always hated L.A. You know, and it, you know, I had this sort of typical vision of L.A. as being a place of a bunch of ambitious, you know, superficial. Shallow. Yeah, well, that part's true. Yeah, yeah it is yeah. true. I mean, that's and that's probably. But now, but now they want to talk to you. Uh, yeah, I had this vision of L.A. as being just uh, full of these superficial, you know, climbers. And since I really didn't have anything to offer, nobody was looking to climb with me, right? Um, but, <laughs> that's, that's sort of a bonobo reference, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, since the book came out, I, I, I tend to get invited. You know, I meet people. I meet people like you guys. I meet um, people who are really fucking interesting. Yeah, there is actually a lot of interesting stuff going on in yeah. L.A. that Damn. is not part of what the popular conception of what L.A. is. Right. Although there's plenty of that, too. There's plenty of that. But, you know, I, was at, I, I mean, it sounds like I'm, I'm going to name drop a little bit. The first day I got to LA to, to sort of live here. I drove down from Vancouver. Um, I got invited to Moby's birthday party. Right. At his house. Right. I don't know Moby. I know like two songs by Moby, you know, the songs everyone else knows. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I go to this party and, and first of all, I thought, okay, rock star party, it's going to be like Coke and hookers and it, no, this no. was like family. He's kids. a vegan. And yeah, there super, wasn't even yeah. any booze there. It was like, <laughs> what kind of party is this? Like everyone's by the pool with their kids and their dogs. And where's the crystal? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where, you, where, where's the coke? Where's and uh, so it was completely not what I expected. But then the other thing that was not what I expected was I met all these really interesting people. Interesting conversationally, but nobody talked about what they did for a living. Nobody asked me what I did for a living. And having lived in Spain for a long time, that's something I really notice in the US. In Spain, you don't ask people what they do for a living. It's it's seen as tacky. Yeah. Like that's something an American would do. You know, it's like very superficial. Like walking down the street eating and drinking your coffee while you're walking or something. It's like you don't do that in Spain, mm-hmm. right? And but in the States it seems like that's the normal, yeah. Hi, I'm Chris. Yeah, oh really, what do you do? Like, yeah. 
But at this party, nobody asked. And finally, I said to somebody, you know, this is really interesting. I think this is the first party I've been to in the U.S. where nobody's asked me what I do for a living. And we got into this conversation. And what she said was that there are two L.A.s. There's the L.A. everyone knows, and then there's this L.A. And, and what she said is, like, if you're at this party, it's assumed you've done something that you're tired of talking about. Yeah. You know, and you're not trying to get anything from it. You're not here to network. You're here to hang out and, and you know, have a good time. And so there's like this whole other LA I never knew about where people are cool, relaxed, interesting, but they're not users, you know? So, I mean, as far as my rock star existence, which is very, very low on the rock star scrotum pole. No, I'm talking about fucking hot girls. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to your point about the, <laughs> the ask people what they do, that's something, I lived in Washington, D.C. for uh, not 10 years, and that is probably even more so, there, are no, there, there aren't two D.C.s, I mean, there are probably, but the second D.C. where people don't do that is very small. There's and, a black D.C. Yeah, well, that's yeah. true, where, yeah. where Steve was hanging out and yeah. uh, not getting uh, rolled in the, you know, the ATM. City. But uh, that, that was something I really noticed, and I hated that. I hate people who ask you, the first thing you ask you is, what do you do? And I don't like to be, I'm not, I try not to be a judgmental person, but I absolutely judge people who do that. Yeah. So I mean, I would, I would you know, go out to a dinner party and I'm, you know, I'm just getting seated. I remember this one party I went to and before I even sat down, the guy across me is like, so what do you do? And I was like, I got to sit across from this guy now. <laughs> and, and, but I, I took, you know, I took a sort of obnoxious, well, not obnoxious, but a different take on it. I wouldn't right. talk about what I do for work. I would talk about, oh, what do I do? You know, yeah. like, you know sometimes I go hiking, no, I like crossword puzzles. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I do all, all kinds of shit. Yeah. Um, I, I actually love telling people uh, who do that uh, the most boring thing I could think of. <laughs> so someone asked me, so what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a vacuum cleaner repairman. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And they looked at me like, no way. See, but I would, I would think that's really interesting. Because Hilda does that. My wife, she's a psychiatrist. Uh -huh. And you know, she finds that telling people she's a psychiatrist just freaks out most people. You know, and they're like, oh, you're analyzing me. Oh, you know, they get all that bullshit. So she, you know, she says she's a secretary or a massage therapist or, you know. See, with your wife, though, she should say, well, for a while, I, uh, I, it was my job to flick men's penis, erect penises to make them flaccid. Yeah, I'm She's a, the world's I'm a penis expert. Inspector. She's the world's expert, as far as I know, in flaccidifying <laughs> erect penises. I love that about your wife. That yeah. she, I mean, she developed her own technique to have to do that. Yeah, I love the fact that she had to. Yeah. 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 When, when I, just go, I just go from town to town, from village to village in Africa, flicking men's penises. That's what I do. <laughs> For those of you who may be wondering what the hell Malcolm's referring to, thanks a lot, Malcolm. I love this. Uh, years, all right. Cassie and I got together 14 years ago, and like maybe two years into our relationship, we were hanging out with a friend one night, and the friend was joking around, and he said he was talking about um, the fact that Casilda had been married for a long time and was a good girl. She was raised in an Indian. Muslim Hindu family and you know good girl went to med school and you know sort of studied and did, did what she was told and um, so he was he was giving me a hard time by uh, pointing out how innocent Casilda is and he said something like you know you've only been with what two or three guys you, you know you're so innocent you probably think Chris has a big dick and Casilda and you know we sort of laughed and then Casilda said Oh, no, I've seen a thousand penises. And, and the two of us were like, huh? what? What do you mean? I had no idea. I'd never heard about this. And she said, oh, yeah, I thought you knew. When I did this research for the World Health Organization, I had to inspect a thousand penises in Africa. 
I was like, in Africa? <laughs> a thousand African penises? Your penis is slowly shrinking <laughs> inside your body the whole time. Exactly. I was going gorilla. <laughs> oh my God. And, and then, you know, the rest of the night we were like, wait a minute, the average length? And they're like, but that's from here to the airport. What, yeah. are, you, what are you talking but she, about? She was going and measuring penis lengths. Well, she was doing a full-on inspection. Uh, she was doing research on sexually transmitted diseases, actually. So it wasn't as you know alluring as right. you know some people might think. Um, some of them were diseased penises, but yeah, she was. You know, she was in her mid twenties, I guess, maybe late twenties. So yeah, she ran into a problem with some of these guys getting uh, erections when this hot little Indian doctor was you know, checking their junk. So she learned this flicking technique, which Malcolm was uh, demonstrating earlier. <laughs> have, you tried it? Too. have you tried it? I, you know, I haven't, I haven't tried it. No, I, I have difficulty enough getting an erection. <laughs> well, you know, around I the office. I don't mean on yourself. Yeah. Oh. No, around the office, whenever Malcolm <laughs> yeah. has an erection, I see him flicking himself. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if, his if yeah. someone, if someone's about to go on camera and they have an erection, they need to take him care of. I Malcolm. say, oh, I know Casilda Jatha, you know, she taught me this. Come here. Yeah, it's the yeah. Jatha technique. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the, uh, the, What's it called when you choke? Heimlich maneuver. Yeah, the, sure. It's the Kisilda maneuver. Yeah. <laughs> but that's something that I love. That I. By the way, I'm sure there's there's nothing remotely sexy or interesting about examining a thousand penises. Right. It's, it's like I mean, can you imagine examining a thousand vaginas? Which she also did. Yeah. By the way, there I mean, I don't think I would enjoy that because yeah. you you would imagine a big portion of these women are not attractive plus many of the vaginas are diseased that's why you're examining them it right. can't be fun yeah yeah it's, well that's the question if you're a gynecologist yeah you know, the man a male gynecologist does that affect your yeah i mean in fact uh, one of our close friends is an OB-GYN, and we asked him so you know do you ever get any hot patients he's like look it's such a clinical setting that he said most of the vast majority of his patients are not hot but he said yeah. the few that are hot he goes it doesn't turn him on one tiny bit because he said it's just so clinical and you know there's a nurse and he's like there's no he's like it doesn't do anything for him yeah it's a different mindset yeah i i had a job for a while um as a massage therapist and all of my clients were fashion models oh poor baby <laughs> poor you this gets this, your life gets worse and worse yeah oh. no it's terrible and, uh, you know, people often ask me, like, you know, because literally I was massaging lingerie models, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, did they have to flick you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I flicked myself <laughs> pre pre session. Uh, yeah, preventative flicking. No, no, but really it was, uh, you know, it was a different mindset, you know, like I wasn't I wasn't seeing when I do a massage, I'm not seeing the person sexually. It's it's a body. I'm more into the musculature and feeling the tension and you know whatever that, that kind of thing. And I, I end up. I mean, actually, to be honest, I was half half. I was. What happened was I was one of my um, early ideas for a PhD dissertation involved um, oncologists. Right. I, I wanted to, my idea was that I wanted to study doctors who face death regularly. So doctors who do oncology and intensive care. So people who like a lot of their patients die. Right. So I wanted to get, I wanted to do a um, personality profile of these people and try to find personality aspects of personality that predicted 
uh, career longevity versus the aspects that predicted burnout. And then use that as a screening tool in medical schools to help students choose the right medical specialty. So if somebody said, oh, I'm going to do oncology, but their personality profile predicts like instant burnout, you know, help them and right. show them the stats. And so because, you know, it's, it, med schools spend a lot of money training doctors. And if you burn out after five years, you know, that's a that's a loss, a big loss of investment. So anyway, I had this idea, which I still think is a great idea, but after a while I was like, really, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? Mm, doesn't sound like fun. So anyhow, so I was working in this oncology ward and because I had done massage before, I started offering, you know, massage to patients and then it took off. And so I got a table in my apartment and they come to my apartment. And at the time I was living in a mansion with all these fashion models. So the models were like, hey, you do massage? Like, well, yeah. So it started off with the cancer patients and then it moved into the fashion models. And that's that's a good trade. Uh, So you got rid of the cancer patients and got fashion models. Yeah. I mean, I kept some of the cancer patients. Who weighed more? (laughs) Who weighed more? Who paid more? (laughs) I like the idea that uh, you finagled your way somehow to be giving massages to a bunch of fashion models and it wasn't getting you laid. And that's like, you know, that was the worst thing you could have done to try because all of a sudden now you're not seeing them as sexual beings and you're just seeing them as their musculature. To be honest, I, you know, the, I lived in that house for three years. I met lots of models because they, they would come through and stay there. What happened was the woman who owned the, the mansion had, um, made studio apartments all around. So there were maybe 10 apartments in this, in the grounds. It was like a walled in area with a pool and flowering trees. Was this Melrose Place? It was very much like Melrose Place. Yeah, but it was in Barcelona. And so they would come through. Barcelona was on the circuit. It would be Barcelona, Milan, Paris, Miami, New York, you know, and they would just sort of go around doing shows and stuff. So there was this, most of them didn't stay there more than a week or two. They would come through. and uh, yeah, man, I, I did my master's thesis on the psychological profiling of fashion models. Because it's like, oh, what am I going to do? Well, there are all these fashion models. So I wrote up a questionnaire and handed it out, had a few hundred of them, you know, fill it in. And, and then um, and then I was, they always used to ask me to get the marijuana, you know, because I was the only one who lived in town and right. spoke Spanish. So like, hey, dude, can you give it? So after a while, I was like... It's legal to grow. Why don't I just grow it? So I was growing it in my closet. So I was selling, I was selling marijuana to the models. I was doing, giving them these questionnaires and then I was massaging them for money. This friend of mine came to visit and after a while he was like, you know, you use fashion models the way the Sioux used the buffalo. Nothing goes to waste. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but no, I never, uh, I was I was sexually attracted to them, honestly. Huh. The the dudes I found the guys much more um, interesting to hang out with. The women were insufferable, uh, with a few exceptions. But women fashion models are not fun to hang out with. They are the ultimate high maintenance, insecure. Um, you know, and I'm sorry to any, well, any women fashion models listening to this know I'm right, you know, and, and you're an exception if you're listening to this, but, or you've grown up, but like these kind of models at that level, they start working when they're 13, 14. Yeah. 
They've got people telling them how great they are. That's what I did, actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. You can tell. I was in I was in Tokyo and Milan and all the Paris. Yeah, from the emancipated minor, but with these kind of looks, yeah. and you can't see in the podcast. But trust me. What you, yeah, you're a beautiful, beautiful woman. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so you know, at thirteen, fourteen, you've got people telling you how great you are. Yeah. You know, you're not great. Meanwhile, your education gets completely interrupted. You, you know, your friends aren't dealing with you. It's a lot like being really rich. You know, if you know people who are a child star. Yeah, yeah. But it's not just that your education gets interrupted, but part of your education is the socializing that goes on in school with other kids and being around and dealing with all that stuff. Yeah, and and getting picked on and and rejected and the the negative shit that doesn't happen. And you just got you just got Arabs giving you blow from age fourteen on. Yeah. Yeah, it can mess you up. So anyway, so the dudes were more interesting because the guys don't start working until they're in their early twenties. You know, they've had a childhood, you know, they've been around a bit. So, anyway, but enough about fashion models. You mentioned Noam Chomsky the other day. Yeah. Or, or the other day. <laughs> We've been talking for days. How long has this podcast been going on? I got, like, stubble. <laughs> but uh, I, when I was, I was uh, guest teaching a class one time, and I assigned some Chomsky to the class. And one of the guys in the class, this was college, it was undergraduate college level, one of the guys in the class wrote a paper in which throughout the entire paper he referred to him as Norm Kromsky. <laughs> <laughs> Norm Kromsky. All right. So anything else on your list we should get to before we get kicked oh, here's, out of the okay, just, here? Here's a little thing that I was discussing with uh, my cousin who uh, is a fan of your book and her daughter is a, oh, a photo of her reading your book on, fantastic. The, on, the, on your the Facebook page. She was only three years old. But uh, she was t- oh, I was talking to her about uh, siblings, mm. sex between siblings, right. and whether that exists in the animal kingdom, generally speaking, ma- mammals, and whether back in the the, uh, the hunter gatherer days, whether sex between siblings was common. I think in your book, one of the things where you've talked about is that with bonobos, the only coupling you don't see is mother son. Right. right? right. Uh, but I assume that means siblings and father daughter and those other couplings go on. Do you think that did that happen with uh, you know back then or modern day with the uh, Probably not, because, you know, aside from any sort of moral judgment around that, there is genetic, uh, biological reason for that not to happen. And so what uh, appears to be the case, certainly with bonobos and chimps, and very probably with humans as well, is that we're what's known as a female exogamous uh, species, which means that when we reach sexual maturity, the females leave the group they were born into mm-hmm. and join another group. So there's the mix. Some species, the males go out, like baboons, for example, the males leave, or gorillas, the males leave. Um, but the um, in, in genetic testing seems to show that uh, prehistoric humans, the females moved much more uh, distantly than the males, and the, probably that's because they were leaving, uh, you know, at sexual maturity, joining another group, and then the daughter of that would leave, and the daughter of that, and so on. So the sibling thing probably wasn't a big risk because of that. But it now, was more opportunity, not of because there was a culture like it was frowned on socially. Right. right. Yeah, we don't know what sort of social structures existed, but but yeah, as a species, it seems that there's a. And also there's what's called the Westermark effect, which is that generally you won't be attracted to someone if you knew them as a child. If you grew up with them, you won't find them sexually attractive. So there does seem to be some in some built-in mechanisms against that. It's just hard for, for us to 
determine, I think, sometimes what is just cultural and what is, you know, really inside of us. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, my sister, not bad looking. No. You know, but... Yeah, just nothing ever happened with us. Just I don't know. Yeah, well, what they did, but is it because it's you know? Because this is the argument that I was having was: is it because of cultural reasons, or is it because there is something you know, genetically encoded in us that we're not going to? And yeah. you come up, you have actually a third sort of reason, which uh, with the Western market effects, notwithstanding that traditionally it just wouldn't have come up because the way the patterns of. You know, the young girls when they came of age. Yeah, I mean, I think that Westermark effect is is very very real because I have I have cousins and I have you know I have a cousin who's attractive, but I grew up with her and I I have no attraction for her whatsoever. Hmm. But when I was um, when I was like seventeen or eighteen, I met a cousin of mine for the first time, and she was like twenty two, and she was super hot. And yeah, <laughs> nothing happened. But I'm just saying, like she was, I I was very attracted to her. She was very yeah. sexy. Uh, but the one I grew up with, nothing, no yeah. feelings at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. And there are cases of siblings. There was a case in Spain of siblings that um, were separated at birth, mm-hmm. and then they met randomly yeah. at a party or something, and fell in love and got married. And it wasn't. But they so, didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That story. Yeah. Talk about coincidences. It's ooh, that's a heavy one. <laughs> yeah. What do you do? Do you just yeah try I, to make it work, or do you say well they were te- they were really in love? I say you make it work. Yeah, but then the question is, you know, kids and you know legality, and I, I don't know. I well, don't this know. is the, another like that. That's the kind of thing that I wonder about. Like when you hear about changelings, you know that kids who are swi- set, you know switched at birth and wrong right. go wrong with the wrong, and they don't find out for a year, two years, three years later. Right. And which is stronger, the genetic bond that you know this is my genetic child or the child that I've been raising, and it's going to mess up the kids of, you know, switching around, you know, do you tell the kids and all these things because my, my inclination is it's the kid that you raise is your child right. and your genetic. It's stronger even for, for, for dads. Yeah. I think for moms, maybe the genetic component is also powerful, but for, 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 I mean, as a dad, personally speaking, I love my child, not because it's my child. Uh, right. It's because of the interactions I've had with the kid, right. and you know the nights that I spent holding her, you know, comforting her, like changing the diaper and watching her grow up. I mean, if I found out right now that one of my kids was switched, there's no freaking way I'm giving her up. You right. know, right. so for me, it's much more the interaction and the raising of the child than than the than the connection because. Everyone purports to love their kid instantly when they're born. I did not love my kids at all for like the first couple of months or so. Until yeah. I, you know, had a bond with them. But the, yeah. in the beginning, I'm like, it's just a little blob. There's nothing that, as a dad, you can do. Yeah. Uh, the kid just sleeps, nurses, shits, and shits. Yeah. That's all they do for the first couple of months. Screams. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm not a fan of infants. No. Definitely not. The first year was by far the worst year, and it's been great ever since. But I didn't like the first year. You know, when you invent a kid that knows at birth to shit in a box, like a cat, <laughs> not get a kid. Okay, until then, listen. You know what? What's great about having kids is when you travel with children and you fly, and everyone hates you. Some of them, and then subsequently you travel and you don't have children, and other people do, and their kids are crying. Like there's a most people are flying and they hear a kid crying three rows up, like oh. Goddamn crying baby, me. I'm just like, oh, and you know, thank God it's not mine. You know, <laughs> yeah, good luck yeah. to you. I'm gonna put my headphones on and. Yeah. But you know, actually shitting in a box, uh, that's not a big deal. I mean, I, I could change diapers forever. Right. It's it's the it's the sleep deprivation yeah. that is the absolute yeah. killer yeah. As, as a parent. Like that is the worst part of the first year, I think. 
the sleep you know, and that gets back yeah. to, to the prehistory and the yeah. book and all that. It's like it is not at all natural that that responsibility falls on two parents or one parent. It's mm-hmm. often yeah. happened. That is not natural. So again, there's a case where you know a lot of parents are feeling guilty, like, oh, why can't I keep up? You know, this is just the way. You know, what's wrong with me that I can't get by on three hours sleep and you know being woken up every thirty minutes or whatever it is? What's wrong? With, nothing's wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with you. You're not supposed to be doing this alone yeah. or even with a partner. You know, it's, it's the, it's the system. It's, I, you know, I feel like we're in a society that like tells us what size shoes we should all be wearing size eight shoes, yeah. you know, and the fact that they don't fit means there's something wrong with your foot, not the shoe. But it's almost like everybody should be wearing, not that everybody should be wearing size eight, but everybody should be wearing a different size than they're supposed to wear because nobody is, nobody is nobody, size is, eight. nobody yeah. is wearing a size eight. Nobody is yeah. supposed to go through that, and nobody's right. living a life. And this is actually, before we wrap up, the, the one other thing that I want to talk to you about that uh, has really affected me about your book that I've discussed with you separately is that it's not just about the monogamy and the sexual sides of the book, but what whenever I'm confronted with these societal questions, it's forced me to think about: okay, how would we have handled this back in the band? days, back when I was in band and my buddies, you know, <laughs> but when you were traveling bands and hunter-gatherer and that sort of, and yeah. whether it's, education is a perfect example, we yeah. have an education debate in our country and what is the best way and, you know, is it project-based learning or is it lecture-based and all these things, and how were people learning back then, how did kids learn, what did, what was the education process like, and it was very hands-on, obviously, yeah. it was not sitting at a desk, right. it was doing it, and then not only would you be doing it, and I don't know about this, you know more about it than I do, but also then as you get older and you develop a, a capacity for whatever it is you're learning you then also teach others and you pass it on and there's learning through teaching and right and the more and whenever I am confronted with a question about our education debate in this country I think to myself well what's closer to that because we're not going to do that obviously right and what's farther away from that and one thing you pointed out when we talked about this at the election party was that well on the other hand it's important to have an education system where you're just sitting there quietly listening to somebody drone on at you because if you're gonna have to be sitting through meetings and when you're an adult this is good training for that that's the conundrum, right? Are you, are you being trained to be a happy, productive human, or are you being trained to be uh, able to live in this world? Yeah. You know, which world are we training the kids for? That's, that's again, that's another thing as a parent, that, that's what has kept me out of parenthood, you know? It's like, well, I don't really, a, I don't like Homo sapiens in general. As a species, I'm not impressed. We're like a like a four. Give them a, yeah, give at them most, a four. At most, a low four. Yeah. All right. Favorite species. Favorite species. Uh, bonobos are, are hard to beat. You know, I mean, they they in in forty years of research, there's never been an observed case of rape, murder or infanticide or warfare between bonobo groups. That's pretty cool. You know, that's a pretty good track record. And they get laid a lot. They have a very low stress life. They're happy. You know, they, they seem to be pretty happy, pretty relaxed species. What about you, Steve? What's your dolphins favorite? seem Dolphins cool. are cool. Yeah. yeah. Although dolphins, there has been dolphin rape. We, we've seen dolphin rape. <laughs> Apparently, of marine my, my grandfather went that way, actually. Yeah. It was horrible. <laughs> All right. Well, I just... Okay. Um, Flipper. I, I'm friends with uh, uh, Will Gibson, uh, Mel Gibson's son. And uh, he's a he's a really good guy, smart guy. But he was telling me at a dinner that we had a couple weeks ago, 
that there are like 10 or 14 instances of dolphin rape of humans every single year. And I just flat every out. Every single year? Or, 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 or well, <laughs> okay, every other year, whatever, okay? But th- that there are multiple, multiple. cases yeah. of dolphin rape of human beings. And I just yeah. find it, I, I just called bullshit on it. I was like, there's no way. Yeah, how are you gonna hold someone down if you've got flippers? You know? Yeah, and I mean, what do they do? I mean, do they, I mean, how do they know it's dolphin rape versus just dolphin attacking him being just to hurt the human being it seems odd to me like he might have been thinking of orangutans apparently there have been cases of orangutans attempting to rape female primatologists even if you wanted to have sex with a dolphin i don't think you could i mean the idea that a dolphin's gonna forcibly rape i mean like i i I have heard rumors of women having sex with dolphins but (laughs) but wanting to that's uh, that's, yeah. that's a tough one to yeah. The thing the thing about orangutans and other primates is they're so strong. Yeah. That if and and orangutan sex is pretty much rape. I mean, what they do, the males chase the females through the treetops, and when they catch them, it's like that's it. And uh, it looks like rape from you know outside. Now, whether it you know who, how do you define right. this? You know, we're imposing human yeah, Western right. values on orangutans. But anyway, if if a male orangutan gets a hold of you, you're not going to get away. Um, on the other side, you know, he's not going to get your jeans off. So you know, you just, I mean, thank God for opposable thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think they do have opposable yeah. thumbs. Sort of, <laughs> practice, so, so wait, so are, are orangutans stronger than chimps, bonobos, and gorillas? Or uh, I would say they probably are because they're heavier. Um, than, than even gorillas? Well, gorilla. I don't know about gorillas, but chimps and bonobos probably. Right. But I mean, who knows? I mean, they're all way stronger than we are, right? right. A chimp. One time I was teaching a high school class and I, I explained to the, the kids that, uh, you know, a, a chimp, chimp's about this tall and I held my hand up as I am now, which is, you know, about a foot above the table and three feet above the floor. And I said, but it's, but it's uh, five times stronger than the average man. And one of the kids in the class raised her hand. She said, now, are you saying, when you say it's this tall, are you, is that from the table or from the floor? <laughs> <laughs> like chimps are a foot tall and they're five times stronger than a man. Yeah, like squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like like Bam Bam, you know, picking up. <laughs> like there are no stupid questions except <laughs> only stupid people ask questions like that. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Good question. Good question. Yeah. No. Franz Duval tells a story about how he went back to see some bonobos that he had uh, studied as a graduate student twenty years previously and he hadn't seen them and one of the bonobos recognized him and he went right up to the cage and, and she was looking at him and he was you know the touching hands through the cage and something and she reached out quickly and grabbed him by the back of the head pulled his head in and tongue kissed him wow and he said like you know once she gets you once she's got you you're not going to get away and you know just think of england <laughs> I guess, or Holland, or whatever the hell he was thinking about. <laughs> think of Holland. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else on your list? No, no that's, that's, to go yeah, to there's, there's, uh, yeah. that's all right. No, I, I got the, I got, I got everything off my chest, and I need to. And oh, good. All right. Well, well, maybe we can do it again sometime, and and you can cover what we haven't covered. Thank you. Thank you guys for doing this. I know you're very busy here at the uh, the Young Turks headquarters. Yeah, you would think that. <laughs> well, you, look, I mean, uh, as a big fan of yours and a big fan of your book, this is a real fun opportunity for me. I really enjoyed it. So 
Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, anything you guys want to, you know, promote? You've you've covered. Say say the link again. Oh well, the, the Young Turks. If you want to check out the Young Turks, it's tytnetwork.com. And for the show that we do, that Chris has been on a few times, you should definitely check out the shows that Chris was on for sure. Uh, you can go to youtube.com/slash/thepoint. And you, or you can just do a search for Chris Ryan and the Young Turks or whatever and find them that way. But uh, really good shows, really interesting shows. We explored uh, some of the topics from the book and others that are. You know, we did separate. a show on. Was it on porn or no? You we, did we, another we did show, show on, on porn, porn that you were not. It was on Nina Hartley. Nina Hartley came back. Yeah. Which about drugs. We did a show about. Uh, oh, that's what it was, right? Uh, exactly. Exploring yeah. a lot of and and Chris is the greatest. Uh, he's he's hosted and he's the greatest host because he also produces the show. Essentially, he he brings his his guests with him and he he tells me who to get in touch to provide yeah. us with videos to start to launch the segments. All I have to do is email them and use his name. And so I like having him because I don't have to do my job. Yeah, uh, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Okay, so if you if you enjoy the podcast, I'm told it's important to leave uh, comments and rating on iTunes. That Can people leave comments about their favorite uh, coincidences in their life? Because I was su- suggesting that to you earlier. Well, on iTunes, there's a thing where you can leave comments on the podcast. I mean, I guess you could say whatever you want in there as long as you give it five stars and, you know, begin with great podcast there you go yeah. <laughs> and then and then yeah tell us about your favorite coincidences um and also uh certainly on twitter i'm at chris ryan phd and uh always interested to hear from listeners and steve is at steven o s-t-e-v-e-n-o-h 88 and i'm at uh, culture schlock which is c-u-l-t-u-r-e-s-h-l-o-c-k yeah you've got a that's your blog too right? yeah i do it's i do a, a, a humor column as well for my local paper and one of the things i wanted to talk to you about was humor actually have you ever done stand-up i have not done stand-up uh but i write this humor column that's one thing that i wanted to do was to maybe become like the next dave barry or whatever right and then yeah, that is your voice it turned yeah. out that the uh, the new publishing newspaper industry not really you know taking off exactly yeah so <laughs> I was like, you know what's what the print media? That's where the future lies, and uh, turns out not so much. Yeah, but uh, but this is much better because now I get to hang out with you and do podcasts and shoot the shit like this and talk about sex with supermodels for free. And find out that it's not that good, so I don't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or maybe nobody wanted to fuck me, and I just like justified it by saying, well, I didn't want to fuck them either, like that Louis C.K. bit. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, but evidence would not bear that out in your experience, in my understanding. Yeah. I'm talking about fashion models. Oh, fashion yeah, models. Yeah, no. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I know they didn't want to fuck me. Yeah. There's no question about that. Well, I mean, I think one of the best advantages of being married is to have this fantasy that, Jesus Christ, if I weren't married, I'd be fucking everyone. <laughs> right. But because I'm a good, loyal husband, virtuous, I'm not fucking anyone, including my own wife. You know what? <laughs> This is this is my definition. How you know that you're married is when you masturbate and you think about your own wife. That's how you know you're married. Wow. That's really married. <laughs> yeah, that's like super married. You know, there was a, I think I think we mentioned it in Sex at Dawn. There was a there's a form of adultery that's defined as, you know, from the uh, 1800s, 1700s, something like that. It was defined as enjoying sex too much with your wife. That was also considered adultery. Daniel oh Defoe God. wrote about it. The Robinson Crusoe book. Yeah. He wrote a book all about, like, it's something about, you know, defilement of the marriage bed or something. Like, okay, you can only fuck one person and you can't even enjoy that. Yeah. You know? That's well, but that's, I mean, that's mirrored in today's talk with people like Rick Santorum or whatever who talk about sex being purely for procreation and you're doing it. Right. You know, it's like, like, 
God made this fun just so you would do it, you stupid, you know, you, you yeah. sinful person. And, you know, right. if seven times, if you, know, if, you, yeah. if you really were, you know, godlike, you wouldn't even enjoy it. You would just go through, you know, go through the motions, which right. uh, I think a lot of married wives actually have taken that to heart. No, I'm oh, kidding. I'm oh, kidding. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, what, what were you saying, though? You reminded me of something when you were just talking about. Uh, Oh, oh, the thing about uh, you think you would have sex with everybody, da 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 da. The sad thing about that is, I don't know how old you were when you first got married, but it is a very different scene to be a 25 year old dude out on the prowl or a 35 year old dude or a 45 year old dude. It is a very different scene. I know. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Unless you're a TV producer like Steve. No, no. That's what oh, I'm saying. Oh, it's better now. It's much oh, better. Yeah, okay. the, older, the older you get, I guess, you know, there's a limit at some point, but a no, 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 women no. get a lot more interesting. It's, it's, it's yeah. totally true because I have a lot more self-confidence right now. Right. Exactly. I have a lot more money. Yeah. I have a lot more opportunity and access. And you care less. And I care less. always yeah. a source of power. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, when I was in my twenties, I was totally insecure. I was like, "Oh my god, what if she says no?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> I wouldn't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Save me some time. Say no early. If yeah. you're gonna say no, say it now, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I can talk to your friend. That's the motto, kids. Take if you can take nothing away else away from this podcast. Oh, that's it. Say no early. It's true. Well, let's move on. It's true. People like sometimes ask me like advice and relationship advice and something. The only the only I hate giving advice, but the only advice I'm comfortable giving is figure out your non-negotiables and then don't negotiate, right? So if she's not into that, whatever your thing is, right? You're, you got a kink, you, you, you want to, you don't want to have kids, you do want to have kids, whatever it is that you're not going to negotiate, figure that out. And then don't waste your time with somebody who isn't, no matter how cool they are, no matter how sexy, no matter, you know, how good your, your chemistry is, there's a difference between loving someone and being compatible with them. I wasted a lot of time on that. I, you know, I think most of us have. Right. So, so figure out your non-negotiables and don't negotiate. That's it. President Obama, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a little late, but, you know, there's still time. He does the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> Figures out his non-negotiables and, and then puts them on the table. And negotiates them all the way. He doesn't yeah. even negotiate. He just gives he them. He just gives them. Yeah. yeah. I can't believe this turned into such charged political discussion. <laughs> political commentary. Yeah. All right. Let's get out of here. Jenks going to come back for his day. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Give it a rest.
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.